Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to Are You Going My Way? An Agora Podcast Network discussion of transportation, technology, and planning. Moderated by your host, Steve Guerra, of the History of the Papacy podcast. Today we are doing a special crossover episode amongst the Agora Podcast Network. We're calling it Going my way, we are going to look at different forms of transportation and how transportation technology is rapidly changing and how it's going to change in the future and how that will affect planning, urban planning, transportation planning, technology, and a whole host of other issues. I'm going to be your host, Steve, and I host the History of the Papacy podcast along with uh, some of these Agora crossover episodes. I have no formal education or any education otherwise in planning. But uh, fortunately, today for this introductory episode, we are joined by Ben Jacobs of the Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast, who is a planner by day. Ben, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing all right. It's a little bit warm, but. I'm in the basement, so it's cooler down here. <laughs> now, you're a podcaster by night, but your your actual trade is in planning. Maybe you can tell us about the world of planning. Yeah, sure. Uh, this is the question that I always get asked at dinner parties and stuff. It's every planner lives in absolute abject terror of getting asked this question. <laughs> um, it, it's... It's a multidisciplinary field, and in some ways, it's one of the oldest professions in in government. Um, you know, as soon as you get more than yeah, humans are kind of hardwired wired to be in sort of a tribal setting. As soon as you get more than fifty people together, problems start developing, and so as soon as we started building cities, we started having problems that you needed someone to resolve. Um, and there's some really early examples of planned cities, but in a lot of ways, urban planning is a really new discipline. The, the version that we practice now, that I practice, what I was educated in, really dates back at earliest to Napoleon III's regime in France. And really the, the, the things, the wellsprings that we all sort of date ourselves from are in the 19th century, in the 1820s in England. Um, and that that didn't even really start to bite in terms of actually getting things done until the 1920s in the United States. 
And even even up to the 1950s, the 1960s, you didn't go to school and become an urban planner. <laughs> you know, there were, there was no college degrees in that. Um, the people who were doing planning uh, in practice, and you know, some really important people that have really shaped the cities that we know and love today, they were ma- they were made you know the, they were educated as civil engineers, or a lot of them were architects. There were some sociologists, but you know it was a lot of architects and civil engineers who who made these choices, and so a lot of them made some decisions that were to be kind, um, uh, well-intentioned pseudoscience, <laughs> um, and uh, so that all started to turn in the 1970s uh, with the the fight between Jane Jacobs and Robert Moses in New York City resulted in, in a huge uh, political scandal and very public fight. Uh, Robert Moses was a very powerful, quote-unquote, planner, even though he was a civil engineer and his technical job description was parks commissioner. But he was busy for, you know, since the 40s, plowing highways through people's neighborhoods and stuff. And Jane Jacobs was just this housewife with, a, you know, background in journalism who took him on and, and stopped him in his tracks and, you know, ultimately led to his downfall. Uh, and the book she wrote, The Death and Life of the Great American Cities, is really where modern planning starts. And if you if you take that book as your, your starting point, you have to be super humble about what we can know. You know, it, it's a it's a social science, so the, the bar for certainty is already pretty low compared to what we would normally like. Uh, but ultimately, we have to recognize that the same policy is not right in all the same places, and uh, you know, we we have to ideally use our expertise to help the community realize their own goals. I have not answered your question. <laughs> <laughs> So let me try again. <laughs> um, in urban planning, we we bring together you know public policy, sociology, and sort of uh, a, a knowledge of space. What we're trying to do is use um, public policy and uh, governmental tools to a certain extent to help create places that will allow for human flourishing. Um, to a large extent, given that we all live, most of us live in places that are already built, we're trying to guide policies that will ha- help reduce the negative impacts of living in urban places and reduce the barriers to human flourishing. But the ideal is ultimately to actually encourage it using those tools of where things are, uh, the kinds of policies that people have access to, and the the things that make uh modern life possible at the ground level. Maybe quickly we could just talk about what got you involved in urban planning. What made you want to pursue that as a career? Yeah, um, that's it, an interesting question. I actually, sort of comes from my love of history, to be honest. Um, I got into history really young. My grandfather, who got me into history, also got me into uh, far-left politics. <laughs> Uh, he was he was something of a socialist, and but that background is really just to say I wanted to, you know, history was important to me. It's something I cared about, but I wanted to use what I'd learned to do something to help 
people who weren't just students who paid a lot of money to go to school. You know, um, you know the the height of the career that you can get as a historian is as a professor at an academic institution. But with with urban planning, you can take the lessons of history and translate them into something practical that'll help people in, in their daily lives. So that, that's really what got me into urban planning. Uh, I cast around for a long time to find something that would let me do that, but <laughs> urban planning is, is what I settled on. This episode, this is going to be an introduction to a series of episodes where we really do deep dives into a lot of different aspects. What are some of the topics that we're going to hit upon in this series of episodes on transportation and transportation technology? It's going to be an interesting discussion. Ben McGrew is going to be our other co-host, um, and uh, he, he wasn't able to join us today, but that's okay because I think that we're just setting the table for this one. Um, and what we're going to be talking about is a bunch of these new emergent technologies that may really change the place settings in terms of how we travel around. Uh, so things like autonomous vehicles, electric vehicles, which is more Ben McGrew's area of specialty. And then, you know, demand response services like uh, Uber and Lyft. The people who are really into these technologies and these services, you know, are, are full of all these uh, promises. As a transportation planner that, you know, they're going to make everyone's life better. They're going to solve all the problems. Uh, as a transportation planner, which transportation is my area of specialty. We've seen this stuff before. <laughs> Not you know, electric vehicles, obviously, but there's, there's a long history of trying to technology our way out of problems. Um, sometimes it works. Uh, sometimes it just creates new problems and sometimes it doesn't do anything. I think talking about these three technologies together in particular is important because a lot of what is getting promised for one or the other of the technologies really only works if you take them together. And that, that's my hunch, that's my considered opinion as a professional, uh, and from tucking into a large number of panels that have been put on by the industry for people in, a, in my field to try and get us excited. That's my big takeaway, is that if we take these things together, it could be really positive, um, or it could really make things worse. <laughs> As you said, urban planning is a lot of different, it's multidisciplinary and there's pieces here, pieces there, but we're going to take out this one slice of the pie, transportation. What is transportation in the whole context of planning a city or a place where people live? Yeah, so um, let's get philosophical. (laughs) Um, Transportation, the movement of people and goods through a landscape. So it's that change. It's that getting something from point A to point B. And there's this concept that we have of access versus movement. And the best way to think about this, I think, for most of our listeners, is going to be in terms of different kinds of roads. So if you imagine a interstate highway in the United States or a limited access highway in the rest of the world, we've created a space where humans who are designed to go like 10 miles an hour at most, we can just fling ourselves through space at nearly 100 miles an hour in this giant metal death machine uh, because we've cleared the path. 
right? There's there's no nothing that's it's really unlikely that something's going to get in your way, um, and the way we did that is by very tightly controlling the ways that you can access that space. So you have a lot of movement, but very limited access. Like it lets you get really far in a short amount of time, comparatively. The flip side is sort of the road that runs in front of your house. For most of us, it's pretty slow. You're going at most 25 miles an hour at 2 a.m. with all green lights. Um, there's uh, driveways and curb cuts everywhere. For a lot of us, there's sidewalks and pedestrians walking around, kids driving their bikes. You can't go fast. And if you do, it's dangerous. That's a situation where there's a lot of access. People can come in from anywhere. Uh, but the movement is really low. So a lot of what we do in transportation planning, and this is across modes, it's not just roads, it's trains, it's what have you. A lot of what we do is putting together different combinations of transportation assets that give you different levels of access versus movement. Uh, and then we have to organize them into networks because none of us really live anywhere that's a, you know, a really solid straight line to anything. You need to be able to turn, which uh, it sounds like such a ridiculous truism. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if you look at what American transportation planners have been trying to do with public transportation for the last 50 years, it ends up sounding like some sort of revelation from on high. You need to be able to turn. Yeah, so that, that's the basics. This access versus movement, it's not necessarily a um, dichotomy, it, is it? No, no, it's a continuum. It's definitely a continuum. Um, and... You know, you can do things to move the needle, essentially, uh, depending on the kind of the thing you want to do. Uh, so, like, if you have a bus line, a lot of bus lines these days operate, you go out into the street and you wave your hand in the air and the bus driver stops. That's a bus line with a lot of access, but it ends up going really slow because every half a block the bus is stopping. So what planners can do in that situation is just limit the number of stops, they put up signs, people have to walk to those signs, and now the bus goes a little bit faster. The access is limited slightly, but the movement goes up. But then the train line or the highway that goes from Detroit to Chicago or something, that's designed to be more movement, less access. Exactly. Where this becomes a planning thing, most of what I've been talking about, you can talk to a, a civil engineer and, and they'll tell you something similar. But where this becomes a planning thing is when you start taking into account the economic and social implications of all this stuff in real space. Because um, with, with urban planning, one of the things that we like to talk about a lot is conglomeration effects. Most cities have like districts that specialize in something like the garment district in New York City or something like that. Uh, and it turns out there's a lot of benefits to that because all your customers end up knowing that's the place to go. All your, uh, the people who are selling you stuff, they already have the, uh, the supply chains that go to that place so you can get your inputs pretty cheaply and, and hopefully you know you can uh, transport things out cheaply. So conglomeration effects are really important. What transportation lets you do is it sort of lets you spread the area of that conglomeration. So if you think old school cities where we only could, we were only walking around, um, like in the, in the Middle Ages, it was a very tight 
area, basically uh, a half mile wide in most situations. Uh, if you do the analysis, you know, the, the old city cores. And, and if you got past that, things started to get really stressed out. That's because that's about how far people are willing to walk at a time uh, from one end of the city to the other. When you start bringing in transportation technologies, first it was the omnibus, which is uh, basically a bus being pulled by horses on rails, uh, and then trolleys, and then you know, trains. Um, this lets you spread out that area of conglomeration. And so if you look at cities from like the turn of the century, what you get is it's moved beyond being just this tight little nucleus. And suddenly it looks like a, an amoeba or a spider. It's got these tendrils going out along these lines of transportation. Then we brought in cars and it just blew out the entire urban area. The, the, urban, the urban metro area of New York City now extends to Western Pennsylvania. Uh, to give you some idea, it's two hours, two hour drive. Um, but it's all interconnected economically. So th that's sort of where we, we, where the planning side of this comes in. And of course, all this has social implications to like how people live their lives and uh, rates of obesity and asthma and all these things. And we're really living in the aftermath of the car being introduced where you're limited from how much you could walk to how much you can drive. I mean, what are we talking that that's really only been maybe what about a hundred years, if that. Yeah. Uh, and cars bought all sorts of uh, really interesting benefits. And, and it's not just the car. Cause a lot of times when you talk about transportation, people just focus on the, the passenger side. One of the things, um, you know, that is a big, the biggest headache to people like me, it, but also one of the most important effects of the, our transportation system is in trucking. Um, and almost immediately, as soon as uh, we started getting paved roads in this country, as soon as cars started being manufactured, you got trucks. And that does really interesting things to the supply chain. It lets you suburbanize uh, your manufacturing plants out into into areas where land is less expensive and things like that. Um, it, it has really opened up um, a lot of the, the inputs that you get uh, for, for the economy and, you know, where people can live. And it's fascinating how little tweaks can really have huge impacts at the, at the back end. There's a local example where, there's a toll barrier, but if you get off at the toll right before that, the truckers can kind of skirt around that toll barrier, but it also makes yeah. them drive through basically a neighborhood. Right. Uh, you know, so that's one of the, the benefits and one of the, one of the, so you, we, with roads, we have a real decentralized transportation network and that's what makes cars seem so efficient. Uh, in comparison, uh, you know, from the point of view of an individual, in comparison to public transportation and rail, rail and water-based transportation, you're so much less limited, uh, and you you have the feeling that you can move around barriers like that, avoid you know avoid congestion, uh, and you you don't have to wait for the train to get there. You can just go out, head out the door, and get going. So that's one of the definitely one of the interesting advantages of of a road-based system 
to a certain extent, though, a lot of that stuff is um, illusory. The that feeling of uh, efficiency, that feeling of, of freedom, is entirely predicated on public policy decisions that have been made in this country starting in the 1920s. Um, the first uh, American highway bill was passed in 1921, I believe. Uh, and before that, there were just like, there were a handful of tarmac roads in the country. Um, even in the cities, most of them were cobblestone. And uh, there was really no way to, if you, there's, there's a documentary somewhere uh, on the first guy to drive coast to coast. And it took him months. <laughs> like he started in California and got to uh, Montana and then got stuck for two weeks because he needed a spare part. <laughs> and he was being sponsored by the car company, but they had to like use a train to ship the part out to him. And so, and there are no tarmac roads. He kept getting stuck in mud holes and stuff. So the, a very conscious public policy decision was made to start building highways. Uh, and at the time, that meant what we would call now county roads, just roads to connect the county seats, which started creating a network. And almost, and that created, it created something that we in the industry call induced demand, where once you're, you've created a road, um, all of a sudden, now people realize that they can get that car and use that road. And so, you know, the joke is that two weeks after the first road was built, there was the first traffic jam, right? You know, <laughs> uh, as soon as people realize that this is an option, they start buying cars, they start using the road. And next thing you know, that sense of freedom that you have is gone. So we've talked a little bit about where uh, some of these pieces that have come together. Now, different forms of transportation have different costs. In general, what are the costs of transportation, not only just in money, but in, like you were saying, efficiency and cost-benefit analysis for individuals versus the larger community. Sure, yeah. So let me start by talking about the road system. Um, a lot of us feel like when we get out the door and jump in our car and drive somewhere that the roads are free. They're, they're you know, a uh, free good. Tallying out the costs of road construction and maintenance is actually really difficult in the United States because it's done at different levels of government. But we think that it's something like $42 billion in 2017, uh, with, and that's just from the federal government. We think that it's a roughly equivalent amount from the states. Most states, uh, the, the Federal Highway Administration doesn't actually directly build anything. They give money to the states. Most states match that money dollar for dollar, although they don't have to. Um, and then there's even more beyond that because the, the money from the federal government and the state match, that can only be spent on the higher level roads. So a lot of these lower level roads, like the one in front of your house probably, are actually maintained by local governments and sometimes even by private companies. So we're talking close to a trillion easily in the United States. Most of that money comes from the gas tax, uh, which was conceived of as a, as, as a use tax, right? You, you use gas to use the road. So if we tax the gas, we're taxing you for using the road. 
there have been continual increases in efficiency for uh, automobiles and how they use gasoline, uh, particularly since the 1970s with the oil crisis. Uh, but now with concerns about global warming and everything, it's generally conceived of as a, a social good to have cars be more efficient. What that means, though, is that the Federal Highway Trust Fund, which relies on gas taxes and the state equivalents, um, are seeing really badly diminishing returns on that use tax. Uh, and so they're starting to think about different ways to, uh, to get, get money at this point. They have to. Uh, beyond that, the energy industry itself, the oil industry, is pretty highly subsidized, uh, both directly in terms of uh, efforts to promote uh, national interests internationally to keep the prices relatively low. Um, I'm not going to go all conspiracy theory on you right now, but I, I mean, I think it's, there's a reason we're involved in the Middle East and, <laughs> uh, without going into, I don't need to go any further than that. Other issues in terms of cars are loans. We, we take out loans to buy our cars. So whatever the price is that you think you paid for your car, it's actually usually 25% higher, give or take, depending on interest rates. Um, and you know, so there's the money we pay for the car. There's the money we pay for the financial system. Uh, there's the money we pay for insurance. There's the money we pay for maintenance. Then there's, there's things that even that go beyond that, that you don't even think of like parking. Um, people in the United States tend to expect parking to be free. Uh, that land has a value that costs money. Um, generally people don't even ever pay the costs of the parking spaces that they use. Um, but it goes even beyond that because we've created, when you get into things like zoning ordinances, the way that many municipalities and cities structure parking, they tend to ask businesses and to provide enough parking for Black Friday, right? The busiest day of the year. The entire rest of the year, most of that parking is completely vacant. Even if you're talking about a land use where the parking lot is efficiently used, it's only ever going to get efficiently used like eight hours of the day, right? You know, you have an office building and say that they have full staffing and they've fully used their parking lot. Well, mm -hmm. five o'clock, everyone leaves. <laughs> and this is just wasted land uh, at that point. And then, you know... If you talk about public parking on streets, you're taking away very expensive and hard to acquire right of way in, in a in a public street from things that you, you could be using that space to have bus lanes and speed up the public transportation system, uh, or uh, more room for pedestrians or bicyclists. And pedestrians and bicyclists have completely disproportionate rates of getting killed and injured in traffic accidents. Um, you know, compared to the number of people who are actually out there walking and biking, they're, they're much more likely to be injured. So providing infrastructure to protect them would be potentially something that you could do with parking rather than having a car sit there empty for a little while. One consideration that we have to talk about is something called the last mile problem. What is the last mile problem and why is it something that we need to consider in this broad conversation about transportation it's a real sticky problem um it gets to something that i was talking about 
earlier about how we really want to use with transportation, you really need networks. You you have these high value pieces of infrastructure and what you do is you build you know the 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 rail lines, the the highways and stuff. What you do is you build them between areas where people want to travel. You know, so between two cities or between, you know, an area where there's a lot of people living and an area where there's a lot of jobs or something like that. Um, but then you need to get people to that infrastructure. You know, you, you don't get, you know, like we talked about before, you don't get right out from your house and end up on the highway. Um, you need to get to the highway. So the problem that you run into with all these transportation systems, and part of the reason that transportation in general can't ever be profitable uh, is that that issue of needing to get people from where they live to the piece of infrastructure that's actually going to get them to where they want to go. In terms of like trains, for example, the Northeast Corridor in the United States for Amtrak is massively profitable and popular. Um, and what ends up happening is that that subsidizes the entire rest of the Amtrak system. Um, but you can't get rid of the other pieces of the system because if you do, people, a lot of people can't then get to the Northeast Corridor. Um, if, if you imagine, uh, you, we can go back to that example for public transportation of there's a place where a lot of people live and there's a place where a lot of people work. People will only really walk about a quarter mile at, to get to a piece of public transportation, to, to a bus stop or whatever. Say you have an area where a bunch of people live. If you only have one stop there, uh, and it's you know say it's a two-mile area, well, you're only getting the people in the quarter-mile circle of that stop. And it's actually worse than that because it's a quarter-mile linearly so the streets turn and everything so it's really a quarter mile walk from the station so you you end up losing most of the people in that area um that would potentially want to use the piece of transportation infrastructure but they can't get there so what do you do well you put in a second piece of transportation infrastructure to get out at some of those other people and get them into the main piece but then there's not as many people who want to go from one residential area to another residential area. So that line always operates at a loss. But it's necessary to get the people to the main line. And that's basically, and you do that too much, and then your entire system's operating at a massive loss, and it's inefficient from a financial standpoint. So that's the last mile problem. How do you get people from that main piece of infrastructure to where they actually live? So the last mile, that's really saying that last little bit where you get off of a efficient means of transportation, the last mile is the generally inefficient to get somebody or a good or something to that's ultimate destination. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I, you know, I, I think of um, when I was in college, I went to school in, uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts. There's a, uh, a train line right through town. Um, it went straight to, um, where, uh, where I, you know, it went straight to New York city. I lived in, I grew up in New Jersey and getting home, I would pay, you know, 45 bucks to ride Amtrak to get to New York. And then I would pay, uh, 
you know, 30 bucks to get from New York to the to New Brunswick, which is Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Uh, an eighth of the distance from, from Worcester, Massachusetts to New York City. <laughs> and then I'd pay you know, 10 bucks again to ride the cab to my house. <laughs> and so it's like, as I'm going these shorter distances, the, the cost that I'd be assessed would go up and it would end up being that it was as expensive to get from New York city, which is like 10, 20 miles from my house as the crow flies, you know, uh, it would cost as much to do that short distance as it would take me to get up to Worcester, Massachusetts. So yeah, there's um, it's it's a real intractable problem, and the more you think about it, the more you notice it in your day to day life. Generally, is it are you concerned more with transporting people or goods? That's a really good point. I, I think I, I opened with this uh, a line about this, but they're both really important. The interesting thing is that goods tend to be way more profitable to move than people. <laughs> um, so to a certain extent, we've allowed them to take care of themselves in this country. Um, all the train systems went out of business in the 60s, but uh, and Conrail was, was pretty inefficient. But at this point, there's four train companies in this country, uh, freight train companies in this country, and they're doing fine. They're doing great. Um, meanwhile, Amtrak is still, you know, limping its way along. And that, that, to a certain extent, sums up the situation. Um, goods don't complain. They, they need, they don't want space. <laughs> they don't want foot room and everything. They don't want bathrooms. Um, but that said, goods are really important for um, keeping our society running. I mean, that, that's, that is the economy. Um, and Federal Highway is is putting more and more emphasis on paying attention to freight and goods movement, um, and so we're we're trying to do more to pay attention to that stuff as well. All of these various issues with 
safety and we're really trying to create an apples to apples with all the various forms of transportation. Let's maybe just lay out clearly, what are the forms of transportation that are available right now? Oh, sure. Yeah. Okay. So we've been talking about cars. The other kinds of transportation that we talk about as planners. Um, I just was speaking a little bit about non-motorized transportation. So everyone walks. <laughs> it's the most common form of transportation, but not everyone walks to work. Most people are willing to do a 20-minute odd commute. How far they're willing to walk can depend. But really, so if you're walking, that gets you about two miles uh, in 20 minutes. Most people really are only stop being willing to walk after a half mile in most situations. Um, uh, then there's bikes, uh, which doubles that range more or less. So that's non-motorized transportation. Obviously that's, that's the most efficient in terms of fuel and land use and, and all that stuff. There was a guy, I don't even know if he was a planner who tried to argue that, uh, using bikes is actually less carbon efficient and his, his math just didn't make any sense. (laughs) It was like, assuming that you eat a 5,000 calorie (laughs) diet made up entirely of steak. Um, so yeah. So the other major forms of transportation, you can lump them together as public transportation. That's actually not totally true, but let's start with public transportation. So, uh, in terms of long distance regional modes, there's, there's heavy rail. Um, you can also, you can also use heavy rail for commuting. Um, a lot of cities have, uh, a heavy rail system around them. Uh, then you can talk about light rail, which has a lot of characteristics of heavy rail, but it's, the actual cars are built in a way that it can transition and turn into a streetcar or a trolley. Um, and ultimately it can operate safely in areas with pedestrians because the stop, they're not heavy. So the stopping distance is short. Um, light rail has a lot of advantages in terms of it can go really fast. Um, it's necessarily separated from road infrastructure for the most part. Um, and you can carry a lot of people and people do tend to take rail infrastructure more seriously. There's a certain nostalgia element to that, but uh, it's also uh, no one you know that no one's going to move the bus lane on you or anything. Uh, the most common form of public transportation right now is local bus, uh, which is very flexible. It has a lot of access, but very low mobility. Uh, it, buses can get stuck in traffic, and then it makes it hard to create a reliable transportation system. It makes it hard for people to make their transfers, which then makes it harder to have a really coherent network. And then sort of in between that local bus and the, the light rail, there's something that they're calling BRT, uh, which is bus rapid transit. In the idealized version, you basically have lanes that are just dedicated to buses uh, and stops for the buses that are actually basically like subway stops or something like that, where people pay to enter the station. And then when the bus arrives, they just get on really quickly. The speeds can be really high. The uh, amount of throughput in terms of passengers that they can get is similar to light rail. Uh, There's a lot of advantages. It's cheaper than light rail. Uh, But there's also sort of that issue where getting from a local bus to a BRT bus isn't a solid jump. Um, It's a continuous process. And so there's a lot of 
people out there that are trying to push towards VRT, but end up over-promising what they're going to get and don't really institute the full battery of uh, treatments. And so the, the buses never quite get that reliability and that speed that people want to have a real network. So beyond public transportation, just really quickly, uh, there's taxis, uh, which we'll be talking about a lot more later, which is some version of someone else owns a car. You somehow contact them and get a ride, and then you pay them for the service. Then there's somewhere in between public transportation and taxis, there's van services, there's limousine services, um, flex, flex ride services that... Um, a lot of times the government's required to provide in order to provide uh, Americans with disabilities uh, access to transportation and lots of things like and that. And then generally aren't things like taxis, limousines, uh, private bus type situations, they're under certain certification requirements with the government and certain licensing requirements? Yes. Yes, they tend to be very heavy uh, requirements because there were a lot of problems back in the day uh, when when cars started being conveyed. Actually, even before cars, uh, there were some there were things called hansom cabs that uh, you know back in the the horse and buggy days that would be driving around and taking people places. Uh, and you know when there weren't any regulations on the market. Uh, there were a lot of, uh, there were too many people in the market. So the amount that people were getting paid was very low, which meant that the animals were being mistreated. And then later on, the, the machines weren't being properly maintained. And uh, there were a number of crime incidents. Uh, so th there, uh, then some people might argue that they swung too far in the other direction and established a number of very, very heavy regulations on the taxi industry. But we'll probably get into that more when we start talking about demand response services. And that leads into the hybrid between personal automobiles and the regulated private transportation and taxis. Yeah, so the, the demand response services, you mean? Yeah, so... This is uh, increasingly common. Um, you download an app on your phone and use that to arrange some, a pickup. And a lot of the people who are doing the, the driving are just doing it part-time. They, you know, they, they sign up, they, they download the app on their end, they get some training, but mostly it's, you know, I have some time. Oh, there's a person who's willing to pay me to drive them around. You know, I might as well drive them around. And, and um, the interesting thing is that it's using up spare capacity. You know, cars aren't just sitting around doing nothing. Um, but it, it is basically in competition with the taxi service. And, um, you know. Those are the modes of transportation that exist right now. What are people planning for that's coming up? in the next maybe five to 10 years that we can, maybe they're not quite here yet, but there's definitely technology that's on the horizon that's coming that needs to be planned for. Well, one of the things that we're definitely planning for right now, and, and really to a large extent it's already here is the electric vehicles. Uh, they're taking up a, an increasingly large portion of the market that their market share has grown dramatically. 
Um, and it does sort of require a different relationship between a, a citizen and the way they fuel their vehicle, you know? Uh, there's a slightly different need for infrastructure with that. And we're, we're starting to do some planning for that. Um, we, the, nationally, there's work being done on making there be a coast-to-coast route for charging electric vehicles. It's sort of similar to what happened when automobiles themselves first started coming out on the road. Um, and the thing with electric vehicles, what they help would help with is that some of the issues related to the efficiency of automobiles and actually we skipped over this before so let me let me go back and just say this when you talk about efficiency from an from a social standpoint for for an individual uh, having a car is very efficient you get in the car and just go you don't have to wait for anybody uh and because of the the subsidies that are made to the road system it feels very cheap um from a social standpoint or from a system standpoint, I guess. It is way more efficient to have 50 people riding behind one engine on a bus than it is to have 50 people riding behind 50 engines in cars. And, you know, from a from an energy efficiency standpoint, uh, that's true. And that's where we start talking about things like carbon emissions and, uh, uh, you know, pollution and asthma rates and things like that, which there's definitely huge spikes of uh, asthma and other respiratory illnesses around like highway infrastructure and stuff. Um, But also in terms of the things we were talking about in terms of parking, the amount of space we need to devote to roads and and things like that, um, sort of the planner's bread and butter, those 50 vehicles take up way more space on the road than one bus. So... When you start talking about electric cars, they resolve, uh, they seek to resolve the issues revolving, some of the issues that revolve around the inefficiencies of the automobile. Um, mostly, they're, of course, they're targeting uh, emissions. Um, so that's something that we're planning for right now uh, and we're working on. It's definitely a harm reduction thing. Um, the other thing, of course, that we're going to be talking about in the series, which is is on the horizon, is autonomous vehicles, where the vehicle uh, has a computer on board, and it, in some way, knows about the environment, and is smart enough to be able to navigate it, and that would allow the user to not necessarily have to be driving the car actively, uh, which opens up a lot of interesting possibilities about, you know, uh, what's your car, you know, when you get to work, what's your car doing while you're at work? Or do you even need to own a car? Um, if, you know, you, you can just hail one and have it just show up at your workplace. So these are all really interesting. You know, it also gets to things like uh, the truck industry and the public transportation industry, late wage costs, labor costs are the, some of the biggest and costs safety that those as industries well. face. Yes, yes, definitely. There's safety issues. So there's a lot to talk about, and there's a lot of unknowns um, with all of this. You know, there's a couple different technologies that could end up being implemented for autonomous vehicles. Um, 
some of them would require really high levels of capital investment by the government to make work. So some of these, some of these systems would require uh, us to embed sensors along all the roads. Um, and then the, the, the car itself would get informed of what those sensors are telling them by, you know, the cloud <laughs> and that would help the car make decisions. Um, the flip side of that then is, you know, cars that just have a ton of sensors on board the car uh, that are operating completely independently. So there, there's a lot of unknowns in terms of which of these versions. What are some are technologies be taken up by the market. that are maybe beyond the horizon that either frighten planners or excite them? <laughs> or some combination um, thereof. <laughs> I, I think we have enough to be excited and fearful about in terms of just this stuff that we're talking about now. Um, in general, transportation is really important. And, and as a planner, the, that conglomeration effect is really important. And it goes beyond just public policy and economics in terms of how we relate to the world as individuals, there's there's been a tendency in the U.S. since we've adopted cars to really isolate ourselves in the suburbs, and that's created some problems that we're not we've only started to really pick apart. Right? Uh, we know that the obesity rates are going up. That's that is a problem throughout the developed world, but in the United States, it's a particular problem and. A lot of it has to do with the way we live, um, we think. Uh, driving everywhere, not walking, uh, not going outside, that, that's certainly a contributing factor. But then there's, there's going to be psychological impacts, too. And I think any technology that lets us isolate ourselves from each other ultimately is bad. <laughs> um, bad for us. Um, and it's in kind of an insidious way because we feel like we, you know, we get exhausted by being around other people, but being around other people also in the long run probably makes us feel better in a way that we don't necessarily appreciate at the time. So there's a lot of these, these technologies that are being promised that either won't work or if they do pan out, they might just result in us isolating ourselves further from each other. And I don't think that that's a good thing. It's interesting you bring up the the more human dynamic. There's one more human element in that um, we need to talk about that will definitely be a part of the apples to apples discussion is social equity. And I'm assuming you're talking about this is an access element? Yes, definitely. Um, it, it goes a little bit beyond that, though, because there's an environmental justice aspect to this, too, in terms, in terms of one of the things I just mentioned, but I'll, I'll get back to that. Let's just start with access. 90% um, of Americans have cars, uh, according to the U.S. Census. That means, though, that you know, if we, we have a transportation infrastructure that's really dependent on cars, in a lot of places there just is no public transportation, or it's really bad, um, 
so what, what do we do about 10% of the American population? You know, some of them can't afford cars. Uh, and it should be said that a lot of the people who do have cars maybe shouldn't from a, you know, a cold economic calculus standpoint, they've felt driven, if you'll excuse the unintentional pun into owning a car by the transportation system. But, you know, realistically it, it's an expense that maybe their budget can't afford. Then there's people who are incapable of driving. Um, they, you know, for you know, physical, mental reasons, uh, some people where we have a, an aging population now, um, as, as the baby boomers move through the system, this is going to be more and more of an issue. Um, and the burden of getting people around who don't have cars falls on these public transportation agencies that are chronically underfunded. A lot of times, though, the the people end up moving around. They can't even use the public transportation systems because they haven't been given the money they need to upgrade to allow uh, disabled access. So then the burden falls on these very specialized Medicaid and Medicare programs, um, some of which are really great. Uh, the one here in Rhode Island is, is very well regarded, actually. But then every now and then you hear about things that go wrong. Uh, there was a scandal earlier this year about the one in New York City that there was a, a couple sexual predators who were getting sheltered by the union down there and uh, were you know, taking advantage of the patients. And they are another expense added yeah. on to all the other, the public and private uh, modes of transportation that are already in place. Yeah, it is. It is an issue that they're, they're fairly inefficient from a cost perspective, um, and you know, it's probably the most efficient way to get that population from place to place. But um, you know, it's definitely to a certain extent, it's money that wouldn't have been going into the regular transportation system because it's coming from Medicaid and Medicare, but not necessarily. But not all the costs of running this whole separate transportation system are necessarily covered by those programs. So it is an issue. The other side, the environmental justice side, the places where pollution is most likely to create problems are areas that are most likely to be inhabited by the poor and by, uh, by minorities. Uh, these are then the people who are least able to afford like insurance and doctor's bills and, and the ramifications of what's going on. So if you have a, a population that doesn't have resources, who just by breathing ends up developing illnesses because of the environmental conditions in which they're living, and they don't really have an alternative to move anywhere else because they can't afford it because housing is really expensive right now. Um, you know, that, that's obviously a negative issue for society as a whole. Um, and, you know, and then it, it, these things build. If you're spending too much of your income to afford a car um, and you, you have this very immobile lifestyle, very car-dependent lifestyle, you know, you can't afford the gym. You maybe, given the place you live in, you probably don't have access to good parks. Um you're probably working multiple jobs. Uh, this is create, you know, the social isolation we've talked about just before. Uh, it's likely to create addiction problems. So there's, uh, there's these things tend to re reinforce each other uh, and 
transportation is not something that's going to solve addiction. <laughs> but uh, it's a piece of the puzzle, to be sure. And transportation, well, like you said, transportation isn't necessarily going to solve it, and transportation isn't necessarily the entire cause either. Exactly. Of course, of course. It's just one piece in a very, you know, the problem of poverty, you know, it's something that human humans have been struggling with since the Neolithic Revolution. Uh, it's one of those ramifications of having more than 50 people together in one place. But um, certainly providing adequate public transportation is not going to solve poverty. But uh, I, I do think that uh, it's one of the lenses through which you have to view transportation issues uh, because there are impacts. Um, and and with, with planning, causes and effects are often hard to distinguish because there's a lot of self-reinforcing cycles um, in, in human society. Uh, there's a lot of variables and a lot of... It's a very complex system. But uh, so, yeah, transportation is one of those things where it doesn't create the problem, um, but it can make things worse. I think today, Ben, you've really laid out the parameters of the discussion and where we're going to go. I'm really excited to hear more and to uh, talk with our other Ben to see what are some of the issues, what can be balanced out here, and get a lot of different perspectives. What are you looking forward to, and what do you hope to get out of this uh, multi-series conversation? On a, on a purely selfish level, I, I'm, I'm hoping to get uh, help people understand the, the planner perspective on a lot of this stuff, because it's, it's so complicated. <laughs> obviously uh, that a lot of times it's hard to to convey how how we see the world uh but we uh, uh you know i'm really looking forward to talking to ben as well uh it, it's always easy to get wrapped up in my own perspective on this stuff in my day job um and, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to what he has to say on this stuff and i think you know on the most broad possible level, I, I really hope we can convey to, uh, to the people listening what the the parameters are of these new technologies, what it is that they're hoping to solve, and in what ways they might do so. Because, um, uh, again, there's a lot of interactions in a complicated system. I think we can all learn a lot from, the, from this conversation. I, I'm always learning more, so... And with that, dear friends, we abruptly ended. The audio files in question were handed off to me, Benjamin Jacobs, to edit. Uh, and uh, due to some misadventures with finding an editor, it took us until now, uh, about four months later, to actually get around to editing it uh, and listening to it. And, you know, at this point in time, I noticed that while our intro was uh, shaky at best, our outro was... Pretty much non-existent. So, um, I just wanted to thank uh, Steve for moderating this and the future episodes, Mr. John Tuttle for editing this in our time of need, and um, I just wanted to say that you can find uh, more of Steve's work at the History of the Papacy podcast, and you can find more of my work uh, 
on Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. Uh, tune in in another couple months for a hopefully less inept and slightly more glossy version of uh, the next episode of Are You Going My Way? A discussion of transportation, technology, and planning. And we will have another Ben for the to join the fun as well. Uh, Benjamin McGrew, who we mentioned a couple times, will be joining us at that point to discuss the technological side of things and some of the benefits that we might expect from some of the future technologies. So that's going to be a fun conversation. I'm looking forward to it. I hope you are too. And I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. So thank you very much for putting up with our technological uh, personnel and... Um, professionalism issues, and I promise it'll be better next time. is courtesy of the Blue Dot Sessions. Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.